0: And welcome. It's good to see you. Can we show some good hospitality to everyone at all the campuses and just welcome? Thanks for joining us. It's fun to be together. All of our campuses and people who are joining us online. It's really great to have you to be together. You know, we're just a couple of weeks away from Easter, right? And it's going to be, I think, especially uh, beautiful this year. Don't you feel like just after everything we've been through for a couple of years, I feel like coming together, celebrate the resurrection of Jesus is going to be especially beautiful this year. And it's just a lot exciting, there's excitement in the air at Mountain right now. And a lot of people coming back and new people who are really not church types, welcome. We're glad you're here and you're, you're checking it out. And I, I love that. And Easter is going to be, I think, particularly meaningful this year. We're going to wrap up this series about um, what, what if Jesus was serious and we're going to just give a super clear call about what Jesus is and what he means and we're also offering baptism that day which is something that has happened a lot through history is on baptism is is what people do when they're ready to jump in with Jesus so you know we've been doing something over the last several weeks and I just want to call us now in the last couple weeks mountain people. To prayer again. Okay, so for weeks we had these little cards. If you're at one of our campuses, you have a card on your on your chair. Would you grab that card? Let's do this one last time. Maybe you want to fold it in half and then tear it. Because you're gonna write a, a list. You're gonna write some names of people who need the hope of Jesus. That's simple. Someone that you know who needs the hope of Jesus. You can be writing throughout the time as God brings a name to your your your, your mind, just write their name. And, you know, we've, we've been collecting these names. We've got over 15,000 names that are now up all over at our campuses, on the walls, as a prayer reminder. Let it be a reminder right now for you, and write new names or old names, whatever you want. You write those on, and then at the end of the time here together, Jared will help us know what to do with that. But we've got to do more than pray. Just be sure to invite someone, okay? Invite people along. People are ready for the invitation to come, okay? So we're going to be ready for them, but they need your invitation. So who are you going to invite? Okay, here's something that might uh, be helpful in that regard, Um, an intriguing little thing you can do. As you know, we've been um, working on something called like a video podcast where we're just tackling some of the very challenging questions y'all have sent in, and we're trying to just talk about them in a conversational way, and it's really been great. I just want to give you a short little check out to see what that looks like. It might be a tool you could use and also benefit yourself, so watch the screen. From the time of Jesus himself... Christians have wondered, are we in then times? There are people that are obsessed with it. And there's probably people like me that if I'm honest, I'm just like, this is a mess. The Bible's not trying to tell us that event ties to this. That guy's the Antichrist. This means the rapture's coming. The Bible doesn't emphasize those things. The danger would be in missing what the Bible is saying. There's violence in the Bible. Yeah, so let's talk about people are, people sure. are People are getting swallowed up in the ground. Mm-hmm. Like, is everything yeah. that's in the Bible, God says, you should be right. doing this. You know there should be plagues that wipe out people for doing bad stuff. Sure. Interestingly enough, the Bible is does have things that you read and you're like, "Wow, this these things seem to contradict." And the question is, "Well, uh, how and why and how do I integrate those things?" You've probably wondered about some of these questions. You have friends who have, too. And maybe this connects to what we were just talking about with inviting. Maybe this is an intriguing tool that you'd want to send. So just text the word LIFE, L-I-F-E, to the number on the screen. We're going to send you the link to the next two episodes. And you can listen to them, and you can maybe say, "Yeah, send it to someone. Hey, check this out. It might give them an easy entree into who we are a little bit and what we're about as we go to the Bible on tough answers. So, okay, let's jump in. Hey, can you think of a time... When you gave advice to someone, it was good advice, you were right, but they were like, eh, they didn't pay any attention and they blew you off, right? It happens all the time, right? Everyone thought of an example? So um, usually it doesn't go very well for the people who ignore the advice. Uh, We have some humorous examples of what that looks like in real life sometimes. Go ahead and watch the screen again. The series that we are diving into right now is asking this question, what if Jesus was serious? We're looking at the Sermon on the Mount. It's it's the longest, lengthiest teaching of Jesus. It's found in the Bible, Matthew chapter 5 through 7. And what if this passage of Scripture that contains his kind of manifesto for what it looks like to follow him, what if the commands he gave and the warnings he gave, what if the picture he paints... And the insight he gets, what if he actually meant that we were supposed to do this stuff? What if Jesus was serious? It's it's a daring, bold question. What if the reason some people in our society don't take Jesus very seriously is because it kind of looks like sometimes Jesus' people don't take him too seriously? What, what, What if we actually did this stuff? So we've... We've gone headlong into this, and today we come to the probably some of the most familiar, well-known words, not only on the lips of Jesus, but probably in all of the Bible, maybe in all of Western civilization. Really familiar words from the Sermon on the Mount. So here's, here's, here's set this up. Jesus came to start a movement, and he came to call people to say, I want you to follow in my way and be part of this movement. And then he he gave us some words that he expected us to sort of, I think, memorize and understand and use as a guide to keep our heads focused on what it looked like to actually follow him. And he provided it in a kind of poem that we're going to look at that concisely summarizes what the Christian life and a relationship with God is all about, according to Jesus. Are you curious what we're talking about today? Anybody know? Want to take a guess? It's the Lord's Prayer. You're right. If you said Lord's Prayer, you're right on. We're going to dive into it today, but we've got to back up a couple verses real quick and kind of see some context here. So turn to Matthew chapter 6, and you see, here's something Jesus says before he gets to the Lord's Prayer. In verses 5, also in verse 6, also in verse 7, also in verse 9, Jesus begins with these words. When you pray, when you pray, what does that teach us? Jesus thought we might pray. Yeah, right on. When you pray. In other words, if Jesus was serious, we're going to pray. Let's start there. He expected that a follower of Jesus would because prayer is what allows, it it may change the heart of God, but it, it mostly aligns my heart with God's heart, my mind with God's mind, my ways with God's ways. That's why Jesus is teaching this prayer. Yes, God is going to bend his will sometimes and do us a favor, but mostly this is about us getting bent into the shape of God. And Jesus modeled prayer for us. He didn't just say, when you pray, he went and prayed. The Bible talks very often about Jesus getting up early, getting away from the crowds, the noise and all of that, and getting off and praying. And we don't know what he prayed for for hours when he's alone with the Father, but we have, a, we have an idea here. We know some things he probably did pray about. If Jesus was serious, we're going to pray. Then in verses 5 through 8, which we also don't have time to talk about, let me talk about, um, Jesus tells us a few ways How not to pray. You've maybe heard some people that have also taught you how not to pray. But um, Jesus says, when you pray, don't pray like you're trying to be some kind of spiritual giant to impress people. The Father sees everything and you just keep it real and you just it's just between you and God. And he goes on to say, when you pray, don't heap up a bunch of empty phrases. And as if you believe that the longer the prayer, the better the prayer. Don't pray as if the bigger the fancy words, somehow that really wows God. No, people did that in those days. Jesus is trying to say, keep it real between you and God. I just got to believe that's a really important word for some of us. I think some of us are intimidated by prayer. And when I bring up the subject of prayer, almost every Christian I know feels guilty. Like, oh, he's talking about prayer. My prayer life's not any good right now. Very few of us feel awesome about it. And part of it is because I think we get caught up in the words of it. And we're drowning in words, aren't we? Our society is absolutely inundated, bombarded with messages and noises and sounds and pings and dings and pop-up ads and headphones and text messages and the phone ringing and a spam thing and an infomercial and all of this stuff. We're overrun with words that have now become cheap and so we live in a society where if I ever have a thought, I have to tweet it and put it on Facebook and three other things and if I ever read an article, I post it to 10 people even though I didn't even read it myself, because we just we got words, words, words. And Jesus here wants to give us a brief, beautifully constructed, very dense string of carefully chosen pearls selected and strung artistically on a golden thread of a sentence that we can hold on to. Just a few words, and it's worth looking at every word, and we'll try to do that in the next few minutes. Also, it's important to know, Jews in that culture, which was his primary audience to begin with, prayed three times a day. You see this in the book of Acts, and Jesus would have done this, and the earlier followers would have done this. They prayed at sunrise, three o'clock, and sunset. And that prayer would have started out a certain way every day by every Jewish person. They started out by by praying Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 6. It's called the Shema in Hebrew, Shema, Yisrael, Adonai, Oheno, Adonai, Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one, Lord. And then it was followed by 18 other prayers, and they prayed those same prayers every single day. Jesus lived in that world, and they all, all of his disciples who were good Jews would have prayed that way. And Jesus says in verse 9, it's going to be a little different in my movement. This, then, is how you should pray. So it's time to lean in. Right? I think he's serious. I actually think he's serious. This is how he... Ex- what, if, what if you prayed like this? Let's uh, stand to our feet as they would have in those days. If you're at home, stand to your feet as well. If you're driving, remain seated. <laughs> but at our campuses and here in the house here, let's, let's pray this prayer together. Shall we? Let's read together. Our Father in heaven... Go ahead and grab a seat. Would you agree that for a lot of people those are very familiar words, right? How many of you would say, raise your hand, if you grew up praying those words a lot or heard them a lot? A lot of us maybe, okay? Here's what else I know, especially here at Mountain. There's a lot of people that have really almost never heard those words. We don't live in a society where like every football game has these words, okay? Not anymore. There's a lot of people for whom these are very strange and unknown words and brand new. Welcome, you're in the right place. Second, I think there's another group, and that is those of us for whom these words are very familiar, but we're not sure we really understand. I grew up praying these words pretty often, but I'm not sure I ever really knew what they meant or really thought much about the meaning of very much of it. Maybe you're in that category. For a lot of us, these words are overly familiar, and these words have become this is a dead prayer for most of us. It's an empty rote, something that's lost, it's been sucked dry of its significance and its power. It's a, it's a gibberish thing you quote or might hear in a background of a movie script at a funeral where the, some boring priest is muttering these words in the background as someone's crying. That's all it is for a lot of people. After the fall of the Soviet Union, Kenneth Bailey was teaching at a church in Latvia, and he was teaching people who had grown up in the communist state system, which was determined to indoctrinate them in atheism. And the teacher was teaching one of these young women in the class, and she was a devout Christian. And he asked her, how is it that you came to have faith in Jesus? How did that happen where you were? I mean, was there a church in your village? She said, oh, no, the communists closed all the churches. What, what, did you have like a saintly grandmother who kept the faith and taught you the Bible? No, no, she said, everyone in my family was an atheist. Was there an underground Bible study or some kind of thing that happened? She said, no, none of that. She said, well, what was it? She said, you know what? It was the funerals. Because at the funerals, they let us quote the Lord's Prayer. And I grew up hearing these words, and I, I never really knew what we were saying or who it was about or where they came from or why we were doing it. I just heard these words over and over and over again, and I recited them. And when freedom finally came at last, I had the opportunity to go searching for their meaning." And when I did, she says, you know what? I learned that when you're in total darkness, the tiniest point of light is very bright. And for me, the Lord's Prayer was that point of light. She says, I dug in, and by the time I figured out who it was about and what he meant, I was a Christian. Friends, I I hope over the next couple of minutes, we're just going to touch on some of these phrases. This will shed light on your own life. We all have our own kind of darkness, don't we? That this prayer could be for you something that would really connect you with God in a real way. Let me point out something about the structure, which might be important for you to know. Let's look at the next slide here. Um, you'll notice here, it says, our Father in heaven. And then you notice the your, your, your? Here's the address, our Father in heaven. And then it, there's, there's six requests, six petitions. The first three, we sometimes call the your petitions, or excuse me, the, the excuse me, I said that, yes, the, the your petitions, the your requests. They're about your name, God, your kingdom, and your will. And the last three are about we and us, us, our, our daily bread, us, our debts, us, temptation, and us, forgiveness, and so forth. So you see it's kind of three and three and three. The first three sort of direct our eyes upward to God with these vast, sweeping themes about God, His name, His kingdom, His will. And then, the, and then it comes down to our specific daily needs, our bread, our forgiveness, our direction and leadership in life from from evil. Now I want you to notice some things about this as well. Let's go on to the next slide and show what's the first word in the English language as we go here to the prayer. The first word is? Everybody say it. Our. Say it out loud again. Our. We start with the word our. Why do we start with that word our? Our Father. If Jesus was serious, when you pray, you are never truly alone. That's why. Think about it. This is no accident. Our Father, what does it point to? How many times do we pray, and is, am I the only one who very often prays, God, I need this, I'm sorry, thank, thank you for what you did for me. Uh, I, I want this. Uh, will you please do that? I, me, us, I'm sorry, I thank you. I, you know, does that sound familiar? Did you notice that when Jesus says, pray like this, he never once uses the word I, me, or my. Not once. This is an our kind of God and an our kind of prayer. Prayer is never ultimately private. Your faith, listen, your faith according to Jesus, I'm not talking about American Christianity here, I'm talking about the Jesus stuff. If He's serious, we've got to take it seriously, and it's not private. Your faith is deeply personal, intensely personal, but it's not private because we share a Father and we're part of a family. And every time you pray, you don't just come, just you. You come part of the people that God loves and that he sent his son for. We're, we're part of many others that crosses All of the divisions and the boundaries that people have set up, the hatred between nations and the divisions of ethnic groups, the insiders and the outsiders, and the horrible way we live today with us and them and everyone that we hate and the polarized political landscape around us, the the, the gap between the generations, the gap between those stupid people who don't get it. And it's, it's all this that Jesus is addressing when he says, Our Father, we come together bound as a family, and it goes beyond time and space does. You're praying, not just bowing your head, thinking about you and God. You're looking down the row right now at the faces because this is your family, the people in your life that don't even, they maybe have gone to be with the Lord already, but they were your fathers and mothers in the faith, and you're praying with them. Our Father, you're praying alongside of their prayers. We share the same Father with a wide family And your connection to Him connects you to them. It's why He says, our Father. What's the next phrase? What's the next word? Let's look at it again. Our what? Father. Our Father. In the original language of this prayer, the very first word is Abba. Abba. It's not really, I don't think, talking about the 1970s Swedish rock group. It's nothing to do with Dancing Queen. This is a word in the Aramaic language. Why is this important? It's important because in Jesus' day, Aramaic was the language of the street and the common people. Aramaic is the language you spoke around the dinner table with your family. It's the one you talked about in the marketplace when you're trying to make a deal. It's the one you talked about with your buddies when you're cutting up. That's Aramaic. They had another language which was always spoken in the context of worship. In the Jewish synagogue, you always spoke Hebrew. It was a holy language. In Islam today, for that matter, there's also a holy, sacred language. It was that way with the Jews, classical Hebrew. And Jesus says, oh, yeah, but if you want to be my disciple, let me show you how we do it. The first word out of his mouth is in Aramaic, the language of the street, which signaled a major upheaval. And his his way of saying there is no sacred language. You can approach God in your own heart language, whatever that is. It's so radical, we don't even notice it today, but it started right here with Jesus when the first word out of his mouth, when he said, Let me teach you how to pray, wasn't Hebrew, it was Aramaic, the language of the street. Now, what does Abba mean? We can come, whoever we are, all cultures, transcends time and place. It, was, it made it possible for all of the New Testament to translate translated in all these other languages. Now we can come and pray. What does Abba mean? Well, the word Abba is actually still, today in Middle Eastern cultures, the first word that they teach their children. It means father. Abba, sounds like it, doesn't it? It's probably important to note here, it's not mama. Just saying. No, it's, Abba just means father. It's actually a term of endearment. It's a family term. Some really believe it actually means daddy, like a term of familiar uh, relationship. So if Jesus was serious, then when we pray, we got to remember this is about a relationship with our Father. When other people prayed in that culture, they prayed prayers to Caesar and to the gods, and they would pray, you know, don't don't, uh, ruin our crops, you know, but there was no relationship there. It's a reminder that when we pray, here's what prayer is. It's the real you having a real conversation with the real God because you have a real relationship. Jesus is saying this is way different than the prayers you're hearing muttered as they stand on the street corner and they say all these things. They ain't talking to anybody. They're just trying to act religious. He says, no, you've got a relationship here. You can say, Father. Now, I'm going to try to say a couple things real quick. Jesus knows that we don't all have good fathers. He knows that some of us really do have good fathers. That is not the point. It has nothing to do with what he's saying here. Jesus is not trying to say, hey, think of your earthly father and think of God like that. That's the problem so many people have today. We're, we've gotten such bad images of fathers, we don't even want to call God a father anymore because most of us, so many people, seem like they hate their fathers or it's just they're bad, bad dads. I, mean, I get that. Maybe that was you. Jesus isn't, trying to say, hey, think of God like a father. He's trying to say, let me show you what God is like. And then he, he's not echoing the patriarchy of his day or saying fathers. He's not about maleness. God is not male or female. There's as many female images as there is of male images of God in the Bible. It's not about that. God's not either male or female. He says, Jesus makes it very clear what he means. When when he wants you to know what a father looks like, he tells a story called The Prodigal Son. He says about this boy who rebelled against his dad, stuck his thumb in his nose, and said, See ya, Pops, went away and brought dishonor on his father. But when he came to his senses, he turned and he came home, and the father was waiting and watching and put aside every shred of male dignity in that culture and ran to that son and embraced him and said, let's throw a party. My son who was dead is home again. He's alive. That, Jesus says, is a father. So Jesus isn't saying, well, I want your idea of earthly father to shape the concept of God. It's exactly the opposite. Jesus says, the God that you can call father, let me define what an amazing, perfect father looks like, and he describes him. He says, and by the way, that should shape what every earthly father and mother should be like. But that's not his point. It's about who God is and his tender, beautiful, loving faithfulness to us. Our Father. And that's what makes the next phrase so remarkable. What does it say? Our Father, where? in heaven. Now this is confusing because everyone knew father lived right in the same home with you and then he turns around and says in the same phrase our father but the one in heaven. This is so full of paradox here. But it's a radical contrast. You've got the loving intimate daddy and you've got a father who's in the heavens. You've got the one who's come close and the one who is the creator. Jesus said you can come close to God like a father, but he did not say, just slouch into his presence to say, hey, dude, what's up, bro? Hey, God, what's up? What's shaking, baby? No, he says, this is a God who's in the heavens. The next phrase makes even clearer this paradox. What's the next phrase? Our Father who art in heaven, then what? Hallowed be the name. We don't use the word hallowed anymore. What does it mean? It just means holy. May your name be holy, which sounds weird, like... It's like saying, may the fire be hot. Well, the fire is already hot, right? I thought, isn't God's name? God, may your name be holy. God's name is already holy, right? Well, but we also know from the Bible that God's people have a way of profaning or making his name common and unholy. So it's a prayer to say, I don't want that to happen. I want everybody, including me, to to keep your name. Holy doesn't mean spiritual, okay? The word holy in the Bible just means special, set apart uncommon, not ordinary, not profane. That's what the word holy means. So God, I want your name to be special. The Jews believed this so much, they wouldn't even pronounce the name of Yahweh that, that, that Moses heard on the mountain. They wouldn't even pronounce it. They said instead, they just put in the word the name instead of saying Yahweh. They wouldn't do it. They didn't want to mess it up or take the name of the Lord in vain. They would use the word Adonai or Elohim. That's what they did. To understand what holy looks like, Everyone hearing Jesus teach this prayer would have thought of the book of Isaiah chapter 6 because there we see a picture of God's holiness. And Isaiah saw a vision. He's in the temple. And all of a sudden, he says that, All of a sudden, he saw God and all of his holiness. It was was revealed to him. like like God is high and lifted up, and there's this incredible, majestic filling of the temple with smoke and lights and sound and trembling, and there's winged creatures who are covering their faces saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. It's a wow, amazing moment. He got a glimpse of the purity, the perfection, the beauty, the total otherness of God. And what does Isaiah do? In that moment, he goes, oh man, I'm in so much trouble. I do not belong here. I'm a person of unclean lips and everybody I know doesn't belong near this kind of a God. He got a snapshot of what God was and it's like, oh my goodness. And he just wants to crawl in a hole and die. I'm unclean, I have unclean lips. What does God do? God reaches down and purifies him, cleans him, makes him holy himself, purifies him, and then asks him now, are you ready to represent me now? Will you go because I want my kingdom to be done, I want my will to be done? And Isaiah says, yes, here I am now, send me. That experience that Isaiah had is what Jesus is saying every one of us should have every time we pray this prayer. Hallowed be your name. I see you, God. I know you're holy, and I know I am not. Will you clean me up again so I can say, yes, I want to go bring your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven? It stacks in with what's coming next. It's a way of saying, may your name be holy and set apart and respected and revered. And I want to also be holy because I know that's one of the ways that your name is kept holy. Send me. In other words, if Jesus was serious, as we look at all these phrases, then God is both intimate and intimidating. You see the paradox? God, you're my father, but you're also in heaven and you're holy. Wow. He's tender, but he's terrifying. He's untamable and unapproachable, but he's a daddy in whose lap you can climb and cry. And he sings over you with his love. And this is your father. And when you pray, you can pray like that and it's tempting just to lift up one side a lot of us if we're not comfortable with the other side we don't want to talk about it and we invent versions of Christianity that accent one of these or the other there are lots of people that talk about how big and holy and amazing God is and they but he's he just is so holy that he can't stand his unholy people and they just create a God that everybody's afraid of no one can stand that kind of God there's a bunch of other people who create a God who's so intimate and close. He's just like, oh, he's a buddy. He doesn't care who you are or what you do. He just loves you so much. And neither one of those is the, Jesus, is the God that Jesus says pray to. He's intimidating, but he's intimate. And when, just if I can be real personal, my best prayers. I pray bowing. Because it just helps me assume a posture of humility. I bow my head. Feeling like what Isaiah probably felt, you know, like unworthy or unclean in his presence. And then I can feel his tender hand beneath my chin, lifting up my tear-filled eyes into his face. God is the one before whom you bow in humble adoration because he's holy, but he's the lifter of your head. He's your daddy. What's the next phrase? The next one's a big one. You guys are taking way too much time on this. we got to speed up. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. What does it say? your kingdom come there are three views of history philosophy of history what's your philosophy of history by the way you have one a lot of people don't know how to articulate it but everyone has a philosophy of history like what do you think what do you what do you think of history and time and where it's all going let me give you three kind of quick quick ones here one view of history is that history is meaningless it's all just kind of like an arrow going down. If there is a God, he's an absentee landlord. He, it's, like, it's like God wound up everything like a toy, and then he put it on a table and checked out and left. And it's winding down. The sun is getting colder. God's not here. He's not involved in your life. He's not involved. He might have been at one point, but he's not here. He's checked out. And everything is meaningless. And like Shakespeare's Macbeth, it's like we're just like a crazy actor who stumbles on the stage by accident. Life is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. It's a hopeless way to live. And a lot of people live their lives that way. And some people say, by the way, if you're a scientist, you have to believe that. And that's malarkey. The second view of history, which was very much alive at Jesus' time and ours as well, Greek philosophers and Eastern thinkers both, say that life and history is a series of events kind of moving in circles. What happened before is going to happen again. It may take a thousand years, but we're all kind of on big repeat here. We're reenacting the same old drama. Call it reincarnation or whatever you want. There's, again, no meaning, purpose, direction, control, nothing. The third view is the view that the Bible teaches and which says this is how reality actually works. And it's more like history is a line with a beginning, a middle, and moving to a target. It's going someplace. And the target is the day of the Lord. It's the kingdom of God. It's the fulfillment of everything God promises coming true finally one day. And that's what you're to pray for and to believe that God is moving history in a direction. It says God is in charge and he's in my life and he's, he's, he, there is meaning, there is purpose, there is direction even when I don't see it, even when I can't feel it. I believe and that's an incredible difference when your life is going in the crapper, when the struggles of life look bleak for you, that you say, I know there is still meaning and purpose here. Even though I'm like a soldier on the battlefield, I can't see the whole landscape, I can't see my part or what's going on. I know I have quiet confidence in my inner being that there is at the, at the rudder of the ship of history, there is a God who is not asleep. He is in control, he is in charge, he is bringing his kingdom and I want to do everything I can to be part of it. That's what you're praying when you say your kingdom come, your will be done. No matter how crazy it looks, what the planet looks like, what the news sounds like, what my own inner spirit is telling me, I have quiet confidence that history is not tossed about at random. It is being guided in the direction that God is leading. The next phrase is about daily bread. Let's look at it. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name your kingdom come, your will be done. Give us today our our daily bread. Our daily bread. If Jesus was serious, then we're actually going to trust God to take care of us. Bread was a daily sustenance for everyone in that world. It represents the stuff we need to get by. And we're so worried that we're going to run out, aren't we? Even today, with all of our 401ks and 403bs, we're still worried that something's going to happen. And I'm sure everyone hearing Jesus' teaching here was thinking of the children of Israel out in the wilderness where it was scary and they were about to die and, and God says, I'll take care of you. And what did he do? He sent daily bread. He sent manna. Not He didn't give them a storehouse. Every morning they had to get up and go out and get it. If they tried to gather a little for the next day, it would rot. So God says, I want you to trust me for today. Your daily bread. I'm still here. Do you still trust me today? God I'm so worried that what if I lose my job? What if the divorce happens? What if someone I love dies? What What if I lose the house? What if, what if, what if, what if, what if? And we are just crippled by fear. And this is a prayer where Jesus says, surrender that fear to God. Don't be crippled by your fears. Trust God to take care of you, provide for you what you need. And can I point out one other thing? Bread is always ours, never mine. Give us this day, what? What's the next word? Our daily bread. There it is again. When Mother Teresa was in Calcutta, she, um, she was approached at the door by a man who said there's a family, a mama with eight kids and they haven't eaten in a very long time. Is there anything you can do? Mother Teresa got some rice together, went to the home, knocked on the door. The mother answered the door. Immediately she took the rice and divided it into two. She took half of it and she left, went next door. She came back empty-handed. Mother Teresa said, what have you done? She said, they were hungry too. Our rice is never our rice, as in my rice. It's always our rice. Give us this day, not my daily bread. Give us our daily bread, because everything you have is a gift from God. And it isn't just for your pleasure and benefit. It's also to be shared. And sometimes God may want to give someone else's daily bread, through you, our daily bread. The next phrase is one we need to live by just as much as we need bread to live by forgiveness. Forgive us. Forgive us. Forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. It's the connection between our relationship with God and relationship with one another. If Jesus was serious, then we're going to forgive people. I think he's serious. And if you've ever hung and clung to bitterness and regret and vengefulness, you know that it kills you just as much as, you, as if you hadn't eaten bread in eight days. Our souls need forgiveness and our bodies need bread. And we learn to pray in a world that is convinced everyone else has the problem and not me. It's all them. It's so those people, it's that guy, it's that stuff. It's, those, it, 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 it's a way of starting by saying, the line between good and evil doesn't run between us and them. It runs between my own human heart. So I say, God, I need you to begin to forgive me. And having tasted God's goodness, I turn then and I forgive others. And Jesus actually expected us to do that. Don't miss this important point that there's a very common assumption that if we're going to actually forgive someone, then that means someone did us wrong and the violator has come to us and asked for forgiveness and made an adequate apology and repented in a certain way before we can possibly be expected to turn and forgive. Especially if the offense is huge. How could we ever? It's almost impossible to forgive under those circumstances. How could they ever apologize enough? Never forget, never forgive, we cry. And that is a cry that's been echoed through the corridors of history. But Jesus is saying something radically different here. I wonder if he's serious. He says when you're wronged, you need to forgive the one responsible, even when there's no confession of guilt or wrongdoing. What? Like the Holocaust? Like Ukraine, Russia? Thing? What, are you, what are you, how is that even possible? What would that look like? It would look like Jesus on the cross, saying, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Pilate did not apologize. The centurion did not repent. The disciples who fled and abandoned said nothing. You and I said nothing, and yet Jesus forgave. in a perfect example, in the middle of continued brutality toward him, to show us what forgiveness looks like, and he says, you want to follow me? When you pray, you pray like that. This isn't the cry of the weak. This is the voice of the strong. You pray that God will forgive you, your debts and your trespasses, the things you have left undone and the things you have done. And then you turn that around to others. And the last phrase, the last phrase is, Father, also, just will you lead us in the right way? Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. God, I'm trusting you as my guide. If Jesus was serious, then we can admit that we really can't rescue ourselves, and we really do need him. The world is evil. There's lots of bad stuff. We don't do a great job of leading our own lives. Even when we think we do, we get to the end and realize we had gone the wrong way. And so we're saying, God, I'm no match. I'm prone to wander. I'll get lost. I need a good guide. This is not safe. I don't want to be shaped by the evil forces in the world. I want you to shape me. I want to want the right things. In the Old Testament, there was a massive army coming against Jehoshaphat. In 2 Chronicles 20, here's what they prayed. They're, getting, they're about to get killed. They're about to get slaughtered. And what do they do? They said, God, you take care of them. They're too big for us, God. We're powerless against this great horde, and we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Isn't that a beautiful prayer? Lead us not into temptation, Lord, the forces of evil are too great. I can't even explain it. I don't even understand it, but I know it's real and it's strong, and I know that you, my eyes are on you. Lead us. Lead me. Help me. Guide me. I can't rescue myself. And then Jesus provided a way for all of us to have that salvation with him. Can we pray this one more time now together? Our Father, Abba, near. Holy is your name. So that I can see your holiness and realize I'm not, know that I'm called to do your will and your kingdom. And so may your kingdom come. May I view history, whatever it looks like. I know you're in charge. I know you're leading. And I want to be part of bringing your kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. Sign me up. I'm here. And in the meantime, will you just... Help me trust you to take care of me and take care of everything, my daily bread, and forgive my debts, the things I've done, the things I've left undone, and God, just lead me like a good guide through this life because I can't do it on my own. Are you ready to pray it? Stand on your feet, if you will, and let's pray together. You ready? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven.